invite you to find Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 4, and a big thank you to you, Brad and Chuck, for being such faithful men, faithful to the truth. Thank you for allowing me the peace of leaving such a, such a wonderful place to worship God and open up his word by confidently and accurately dividing the word of truth while I was gone. So thank you so very, very much. But I checked up on you while you were gone. I stayed, uh, 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 stayed in touch online, listened to sermons and whatnot too. I'm anxious to talk a little bit about that tonight during the pastoral spotlight, and I'll do that then. But for now, uh, we are in Romans in our continuing series on this great book of the Bible Romans standing before the justice of the peace. If you've been with us, uh, then you have uh, learned that the, the godless people in this world, in chapter 1, by the way, everybody is godless, right? But there are some who are uh, without any form of truth that have been given to them, and they might say, ignore the facts and enjoy the darkness, uh, in chapter 2, we looked at the moralist, those who are sort of the do-gooders in this world, who might say, live the good life and sort of reap the benefits, if you please. And then we saw the Jewish individuals in, the, in chapters 2 and 3 of Romans, who would basically say, obey the law and be right with God. Now, today, many a so-called Christian would say, pray the prayer and live the list, None of the above have the essential element that saves a person and puts them into a right standing with God, which is faith. Brad covered the theology of faith and Jesus' propitiatory work in chapter 3, handling it very well, that wrath-absorbing power of God. Chuck, on the other hand, took on chapter 4 and Abraham and David and how consistent. To, to me, as I listened to Chuck's message, I thought of the word consistency. How consistent God is in saving people. Both before, during, and after the law. Today, as we look at the balance of chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, Abraham sort of takes front and center. His faith becomes the very definition of just what it means to have faith. So it's worth our full attention, would you agree? By the way, why all the fuss over Abraham anyway? What's the big deal with him? Why do we have to keep comparing ourselves to him? Because... The Jews saw Abraham as the very epitome of righteousness. In fact, uh, Jewish lore said that he was righteous from the age of three, which is ridiculous. In fact, they even said that Abraham obeyed the law perfectly. Interestingly, the law hadn't even come about for about 400 years after Abraham. In fact, there's even a story that uh, in, in rabbinic uh, literature that uh, is famous, the Jews, Orthodox Jews are familiar with this story, that one day Terah, Abraham's father, came home and he found all of the idols destroyed, all but one big, large idol with a hammer in its hand. And uh, 
Apparently, before Terah had gotten home, Abraham took the hammer and broke all of the idols as a little boy and then stuck the hammer in the hand of the big idol. And so when Terah got home, he said, what happened to all of our idols? To which Abraham replied, well, the idols got into a fight and the big ones smashed all the little ones. To which Abram's father, I'm sorry, yeah, Terah said to Abraham, that's ridiculous. Idols have no life. They can't do that. They have no power of their own. To which Abraham replied, oh, then why do you worship them? It's a clever story, but it's ridiculous. If you study the scripture, Joshua chapter 24 says Abraham came out of idolatry. God didn't pick out Abraham because he saw something good in him any more than he picked us out for the same reason. So, the point is, and Paul is trying to drive home the point, as Chuck alluded to last week, the early part of this chapter, that Abraham came into a relationship with God the exact same way that you and I need to come into a relationship with God by faith. It's not a trick question. Is it faith alone that saves? And the answer is yes. Sola fide, the reformers said. Faith alone. But just what is faith? Faith in God. Faith in Christ. Faith that actually saves. The word faith is the word pistis. It basically means to trust. It means to believe. It means to be fully persuaded. What are we being fully persuaded about? Because people talk about faith all the time, don't they? Let me just share some things from this text, beginning in verse 13, and just look at verses 13 through 15, and let me just say this. Faith is in a promise we believe, not a deal we accept. Verse 13 For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Remember, we saw that earlier. Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness, right? For if it is the the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null, the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. But where there's no law, there's no transgression. The law was a deal. Do this, I'll do that. You obey, I will bless. That's a deal. That's conditional. That's bilateral, two-sided. In fact, the law also said, if you don't do this, I will curse. Just to give you a little snippet of it, Deuteronomy chapter 28 says this, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all that is his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses 
shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall you your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, frustration, and all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. That's the deal. Anybody here want to deal with God? That's what Paul means when he says, the law brings wrath. But with faith, God says, all I am asking you to do is believe in my son. You believe, I will bless. Unconditionally. Unilaterally. Faith, by any other means, nullifies God's grace. Now, you saw that last week in the early part here. Abraham, remember Chuck referred to what Paul refers to in the early part. Remember he says, so, so how was Abraham justified? Well, let's go back to the scripture and find out. That's what he says, right? And so he takes us back to Genesis 15, verse 6. Abraham believed God and it was credited, accounted, an accounting term. It was counted to, to him for righteousness. But what follows in Genesis 15 is nothing short of dramatic. While the law was not in existence, contracts were. And Abraham fully expected God to enter into a contract with him at that point. In fact, God even led Abraham to believe he would enter into a contract with him. You can read it for yourself, but I'll just sort of paraphrase what takes place. God says, God tells him to get three large animals, a couple of birds to go along with it, start cutting these things up. And by the way, back in those times, if you, if you made a major contract with somebody, the bigger the contract, the bigger the animal you killed. You cut a cow in half, and you put that cow, one piece of it on one side, the other piece on the other, and the blood's running all over the place. The two of you would hold hands and literally, literally walk through those bloody pieces as a contract and what you were saying was, I promise to fulfill my end of the deal. You promise to fulfill your end of the deal. But I don't trust you, and you don't trust me. So if I don't fulfill my end of the deal, or you don't fulfill your end of the deal, may you be like what we just cut up. That was a contract. That's why the word covenant means to cut. That's the idea. You cut the thing in half, you walk through there together. Okay? So God tells Abraham to get these three animals, a couple of birds, cuts these things up. When he does it, it's all bloody. Abraham fully expects God himself to come down, take him by the hand, and they will walk through those bloody parts together as a contract. How awesome would that have been? Except it doesn't happen. Have you ever noticed God is always telling Abraham to wait? He doesn't tell him to wait. He just makes him wait. Gives him a promise you're going to have kids years before it ever happens. Well, same thing here. Abraham cuts him up. There's blood. The blood's running. It's starting to get a little bit ripe, and the vultures start swooping down, and Abraham has to get him and kind of shoo him off. 
And he's waiting and waiting for God to come down and walk through these parts with him to fulfill this contract. Instead, he goes into a trance. And he has a dream. And he sees God. Symbolized. Smoking like a furnace. And by himself going through these parts. Have you ever read that? And then... He wakes up, and not a contract, but a covenant is fulfilled. Because God is the only one who could and the only one who would fulfill such a covenant, such a promise that you and I could participate in, but not actually be part of the deal. That is, we wouldn't make a deal with God. It's believing a promise. And it's, it's a picture of salvation. God makes the promise, and then he does everything to fulfill it. How nice of him, by the way. The promise was not a deal, but a, was not a deal, but a unilateral, a one-sided agreement by God himself to fulfill what needed to be done. Salvation is by faith as a promise we believe, not a deal we accept. If it was, none of us could ever keep the bargain, right? That's why, that's why we're told in 2 Timothy, if we're faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Have you ever read that? It's because he made the deal. He's going to fulfill it. If we have true faith, that's the reason why, that, that's, the, that's the backing of that scripture in the New Testament that says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Why? Because he does it all, that's why. I knew a young lady, and she gave me permission to share this story, who, who worked for a very prominent judge in the community where she was at, who was nearing retirement. The judge and his wife loved this young lady as she did many odd jobs for them around the house, ran errands. As I said, they were, getting, they were elderly. Uh, and they took care of her. They paid her well. But one day, while she was purchasing goods for the judge and his wife with the judge's credit card, she decided to buy just a couple of things for herself. And she got away with it. So she did it again, and again, and again. Before long, she was caught up in this thievery and was caught. And as a result, in fact, she got caught before the judge and his wife could ever find out that she got caught. And before she knew it, she was turned into the police. The young woman was ashamed and even repentant, but she faced dire consequences. All of, her, all of the good things that she had done for the judge and his wife, and they were many, were not going to count in a court of law. The law brought wrath. And the wrath was about to come down. Jesus laid out a picture of men standing before himself, the judge of the universe, in Matthew 
chapter 7 when he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of God, but he that does the will of my Father who is in heaven. For many will come to me in that day, and here's what they're going to be saying. Lord, have we not done this in your name? Have we not done that in your name? Have we not done this and this and that and that and this and that and this and that? They're making deals. And Jesus said, and I will say unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. Why? Because you're trying to make a deal with God. And faith is in a promise we believe, not a deal, not a bargain that we accept. Faith sees God as having unilaterally done it all. This is what's behind the, those words of Jesus. It is finished. That's the idea. Secondly, faith is the vehicle God uses to bring about the grace that he saves us. Look at verse 16. He says, that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I've made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, he gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. In hope, he, that's Abraham, believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, as Sarah being about, about 90, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's Womb. Now, faith is the vehicle God uses to bring about the grace that saves us. You know the verse, many of you do. For by grace are you saved, what? Through faith. Grace, faith and grace go together in salvation in that true faith sees Not my effort in coming to God, but God's mercy in coming to me. We love him because why? It's always that way, isn't it? He first loved us. When we say, quote, it's all of grace, we affirm the old saying, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the, what? To the cross I cling The realization, this realization makes God's grace not just something nice, but absolutely necessary in my salvation. Abraham is the father of us all, not because we share his Jewish blood, but because we share his simple trust, his faith. God comes to Abraham and says, through you, I'm going to bless everybody. I'm going to bless the whole world. I'm going to bless nations. And in Genesis chapter 17, he changes his name. You remember that? You're now, no longer are you going to be called Abram, which means exalted father, but you're going to be called Abraham, which means 
a father of many nations. Did you know that when God told Abraham that, he had you and me in mind? He had us in mind way back then when he made this promise to Abraham and literally changed his name. He gives life to the dead, which is a a reference to Abraham being 99 at the time of his promise. Any 99ers here? I didn't think so. Although I'm pretty sure Art Cross will still be, you know, fixing cars and tuning up tractors when he's 99. But here's the point. God doesn't just give vitality to the old. He gives life to the dead. And that's what we are. Dead. Dead people don't respond. Only God has to give us life so that we can respond. The purpose of the miracle of Isaac who would come to Abraham and Sarah when they were 100 years old or so was to show God's power and to illustrate what God does when he saves us. Something otherwise impossible. Remember, Sarah laughed. Why did she laugh? Because what God told her was unbelievable. That's why. Life from deadness? Are you kidding? My womb is dead. God says, yep, but I'll give it life. I mean, no miracle rivals resurrection. Can you agree with that? Something otherwise impossible. It is the ultimate miracle. Utterly unexplainable. Jesus' greatest miracles were resurrections. The Bible doesn't record people circling back just to see the guy who couldn't walk before, now walking around. I'm sure they did. But the Bible doesn't record. You know what the Bible tells us? It tells us people circle back when he raised Lazarus from the dead because that was something completely unexplainable. Somebody gets sick and they get better, I can explain that. Somebody has cancer and it's gone, we can explain that away. But when somebody dies and they're dead in the grave for four days and they come back to life, that I can't explain. Short of a God who takes that which is dead and puts life in it. Right? Faith, real salvation faith requires seeing oneself as absolutely helpless. You are absolutely dead. Without the resurrection life giving grace of the power of God in your life to pick you up again and animate you, give you life. Otherwise, you remain in the stinking tomb that some of you are in, even as we speak. Would you like to come out of the tomb? Then you must have faith. Thirdly, by definition, faith completely rests in God's promise. Verse 20, where it tells us, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. And here is your definition of faith. You can underline it, write it off to the side of your margin. This is the Bible's definition, the Bible's own definition of faith right here. Look at it. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. You want to know what faith means? There it is. 
That's what faith means. It means to be fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why faith was counted to him for righteousness, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. How wonderful, God. Abraham didn't waver in unbelief. Now, this is interesting. I almost was tempted to over not go here, but I have to. Does that statement square with his life? Go like this. It doesn't, does it? Does it square with his faith walk? No. On the other hand, it does square with Abraham. If we focus on, like the scripture here is focusing on his initial encounter with God, yes, Abraham believed God. I'm going to make you a, I'm going to make a nation out of you, out of your loins, a nation. Well, you're not going to be able to count them. And he believed it. But on the other hand, after believing God, the same man gave his wife Sarah away twice. Then while waiting for the promise to come through, he takes Hagar as a surrogate and produced Ishmael. Do I need to say what came out of that? I mean, since Eden, there was not a more worthless decision ever made in this world with more ramifications. Then, like Sarah, he actually laughed, just like Sarah did later on when God renewed the promise. You can check that out in chapter 17 of Genesis. So how is he the father of faith? Well, he is. Now, this is important, and it could be a word of encouragement to you. Not because he had perfect faith throughout his life, but because at the beginning... He had unwavering faith in the promise of God with this virtual definition. That's it, just that simple. The word faith means to be fully persuaded. And by the way, when it absolutely mattered, Abraham proved he was the real deal, right? So God tells Abraham when his son finally comes around, he's like a 14 or 15-year-old, hey, there's a mountain, it's about three days away. I want you to go over there and gut your son. Gut him. And then burn him completely, consume him on an altar for, for me. Without hesitation, you know the story, many of you. You can read it for yourself in chapter 22. He does exactly that, takes him up on Mount Moriah, has a knife ready to plunge into him when the angel stops him, provides the substitute, and God says, Whew, now I know. Now I know that you love me. He would never have done that unless he was fully persuaded in something, right? And you know what he was persuaded in? The writer of Hebrews tells us, it says this, he considered that God was able even to raise him, that's Isaac from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Uh, That's faith. Listen, though your faith in Christ is based on his performance, The confirmation is based on yours. That's the reason why James said, without, without, you know, without, faith without works is what? It's dead. James says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith 
was completed by his works. That troubles us when we read those statements. It shouldn't. Though our faith in Christ is based on his performance, the confirmation is based on ours. Listen, here is the point. All of us struggle, like Abraham, even in our faith walk. Amen? But if we truly have trusted him, have been fully persuaded in what Christ has done for us, when it comes down to it, we, when, the, when everything is on the line, we will continue to be fully persuaded if our faith is real. If you are resting alone on the promise, then your faith is real. Here's a fourth and final thing. It's a long point. I didn't know any other way to do it. Faith is not some mindless sleep in the dark. It is based on the understanding that both the death and the resurrection of Jesus are necessary for our salvation. We're not just talking about faith and faith or faith, faith, faith. We throw faith around like we have no idea what it means. There is substance in, in the word faith. In verse 23, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It's worth repeating. I've said this before, but if I baptized some of you in accordance with your testimony, I'd just keep you under the water. Paul connects Jesus' death to our sin, his resurrection to our justification. At his death, Jesus propitiated God's wrath by absorbing it into himself as a sacrifice. In his resurrection, he affirmed God's pleasure in all that he did. And so while we stress that faith in Christ is the sole requirement, it is not nor ever could be a blind faith. Rather, it is an intelligent faith that bows and humbles itself and honors and ultimately worships God for his great love in handing over his son in death and raising his son in glory. This explains why so many claim faith in Christ and have nothing to show for it. If that's you, it's because your faith is an ignorant faith, which is an empty faith. It's no God, Christ-like, biblical faith at all. You still need it. So, I mean, allow an absurd illustration. So, two guys die, and they stand before the, the pearly gates, whatever that means. And here's Peter. Peter says, hey, we got, we got a criteria for getting in here. It's faith. What does it mean to have faith? First guy comes up and says, well, faith. Faith in yourself, of course. And, of course, in the, in the man upstairs. That's how you get in. Peter says, oh, my goodness. Go sit over here. The other guy comes up and he says, Peter says, you know, we've got a criteria for getting in. It's got to be faith. So what's faith mean to you? The guy says, well, faith, of course, is believing that God sent his own son to this world and lived a perfect life and died a sacrificial death on the cross for my sin, was buried, was placed in a tomb. Oh, ho, ho, Peter says, oh, I, 
wow, that's really good. That, you don't need to say anymore. Go over and tell this guy here what you just told me. And just, just tell him. So the guy goes over and says, you know, Peter says, tell him what faith is. Well, okay, well, like I was saying, faith is believing that God sent his own son to live a perfect life, to die a sacrificial death, and was for us by dying on the cross, was buried in a tomb. And uh, when he, he came out of the tomb and saw his shadow and went back in for six more weeks. I said it was absurd. Here's the point. It takes revelation. It takes knowledge. It takes the understanding that Jesus didn't just die. Thousands of people have died for others. But Christ died for you. And he rose again for you. That's why we pull people out of the water after we baptize them. So they can breathe again, yes. But so that they can picture the life-giving power of a resurrected life. Listen, Solomon said, there are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. You want to know why? Because their faith is ignorant, that's why. Trusting in a prayer, religious ordinance, the church, the pastor, the priest, good things you do. Pray the prayer and live the list. There's a whole generation, and some of you are a part of it who were duped into thinking, pray this prayer, live this list, you're in. You're no different than anybody else on the earlier list in Romans chapters 1 through 3. They're not getting in, and neither are you. And you say, well, how does this flesh itself out? What if I told you the person next to you seeks mediums? Would that bother you? They pray to the dead. Or they struggle with homosexuality. Or the guy next to you, when he's done here, he plans to go home and view pornography for the next two hours on his computer. Would that bother you? Whenever the lifestyles and choices of others trouble us so much that our goal becomes, how can I distance myself? How can I fight against this? How can I legislate against this kind of behavior? Rather than how can I demonstrate the love of Jesus for this person for whom he died and rose again. If you're like that, then you are openly demonstrating how outrightly bad your theology is. At best, you're showing very a little appreciation for what God has done in your own life. Aren't I the former blasphemer? Isn't it me that's the drug taker, the sexual deviant, the thief? Aren't you in the same former category? Some of us, we just need to be like Claire Olson, that, our little you know, English flower or whatever she calls herself. Got baptized here a while back, reading John 11. The words of Jesus. Remember that? 
I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet shall he live. And he who believes, lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That's what Jesus asked. And that's what Claire read. And she said, yes. I, I believe it. And she was saved. Faith isn't some blind leap in the dark. It's the understanding of who you are and who Jesus is and what he did. Not just die, but he rose again. If you place your faith in him, you will not come into judgment, but you will pass from death unto life. So, as this young woman I referred to earlier readied herself to go into the courtroom and face a judge. A buzz occurred in the hallway. Lawyers apparently were clearly upset going back and forth and talking to the judge, not the one she'd stand before, but the one she'd sinned against who was standing in the hallway who simply kept waving his hand and waving his hand and waving his hand. Repeatedly saying that she didn't have to appear. The next thing she knew, she was free to go. The judge, whom she had sinned against, out of sheer love for her, let her go. He'll let you go too. He loves you. He's not willing that any of you should perish, but that all of you would come to repentance and faith in the death and resurrection of his son. Would you place your faith in him today? That's what's pictured in this time of the Lord's table. The bread represents the perfect life that Jesus lived and the juice, his sacrificial blood. Together, it makes salvation available to all who trust Jesus by faith. Will you pray with me?